to be delivered into the hands of men. And they will kill him, and when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he began to question them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had discussed with one another which one of them was the greatest. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Taking a child, he set him before them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me, and whoever receives me does not receive me but him who sent me. Today we're going to be looking at this section and we're going to be considering this, this, um, this subject matter of the gospel-threatening sin of selfish ambition. The gospel-threatening sin of selfish ambition. In the Gospel of Mark, we're at a very critical juncture in the lives of the disciples. Jesus is, of course, on his way to, to Jerusalem He is on his way to the cross. He has been telling the disciples this. There on the cross he will suffer rejection. He will suffer at the hands of of men. And finally he will be murdered. Jesus, of course, will be exalted, but this exaltation would not precede his humiliation. As a matter of fact, his exaltation was predicated upon his humiliation and death. In order to be the exalted son of man, the exalted king, he had to undergo the death of the cross. So the cross is not something that can be bypassed. It's not something that can um, just somehow not happen. No, the son of man, Jesus said in Mark chapter 8, must suffer many things and be rejected and be killed. This must happen. And as we've seen, the disciples are struggling with this reality. They are dull in their hearing. Their hearts are dominated by human assessments and desires concerning Jesus as the Messiah. So our Lord, as the faithful shepherd, as a faithful counselor, as a faithful discipler, is seeking to bring the disciples along. He is bearing with them. He is being patient with them in their sin and their slowness of heart. And this, of course, is critical. And it is critical that the disciples have their hearts and minds shaped and molded after God's interests in every respect. They're struggling with this. And this is critical. This is critical because they are the apostles. They are the ones, minus Judas, who will be the leaders of the church that Christ is going to build. It is upon their doctrine and leadership that the spiritual edifice of the church is going to be laid, Jesus himself being the cornerstone, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 20. So this section that we're going to begin looking at today between 
chapter 9, verse 30, all the way through chapter 10, verse 45, is critical to the disciples regarding their leadership in the church. And you'll notice the book ends in chapter 9, verse 30, and then uh, Jesus deals with leadership there, and then in chapter 10, beginning in verse 32, Jesus again deals with leadership. So it is bookended. This is very critical. They, as being leaders in the church, they will have to model self-sacrificing and exemplary leadership in the church. But as we'll begin to see in our passage today, their hearts are dominated by selfish ambition and a fleshly desire for preeminence. And this sin, if left unchecked, poses a threat to the work of the gospel and the unity in the gospel. So our Lord, as the chief and faithful shepherd, is training these future shepherds to imitate his self-sacrificing leadership. This is critical. Between chapter 9, verse 30, and chapter 10, verse 45... There are three occurrences where Jesus mentions the cross. And all of these occurrences are within the context of the disciples' fleshly desire for preeminence. Every time. Every time it's mentioned, there is um, the fleshly and selfish ambition of the disciples begins or, or is brought to the surface. The disciples, at this point, they have a worldly, man-centered perspective of leadership that, if left unchecked, poses a threat to the testimony of the gospel and the work of the gospel. So our Lord is helping them to first identify it, and then He is calling them to put it to death. Put it to death. So ultimately, we can say... As we will see, our Lord wants the disciples to view leadership from the perspective of the cross. He wants the disciples to view leadership from the perspective of the cross. Our Lord brings this to the forefront in chapter 10, verse 45, on his last discourse concerning leadership. He says, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And this is within the context of leadership, their skewed view of leadership. And he says, look, even me... I am the Son of Man. I am the Son of God. Even me who I am preeminent. I am going to serve and not be served and lay down my life for many. At the cross, the disciples were about to observe Christ, the God-man, give His very life in suffering and shame in order that others might have life. And so this really was the ultimate act of selfless leadership. So if in chapter 8, verse 27 through 38, our Lord wanted the disciples to wed in their minds the theology of the cross to the theology of discipleship, here he wants the disciples to wed in their minds the theology of the cross with the theology of leadership. They go hand in hand. 
In God's economy, they are inextricably linked. And I think before we go through this section, I, I think it's critical just to bring something to the forefront here that our Lord is not rebuking the disciples for sheer ambition. That, 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 that is not what the Lord is rebuking them for. Ambition in and of itself is not wrong. It is possible to have good ambition. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. There can be no greater ambition. There can be no nobler ambition than this, than to have an ambition to be pleasing to God. And Paul says, this is our ambition. It's also not wrong for one to desire to be a leader. This is a God-given desire to those whom he is calling. As a matter of fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, this is clear. If anyone desires or literally has a lust for this office, is, is the word that is used there. So I don't believe our Lord is rebuking them or he's not getting after them because they want to lead. He is not getting after them because they have this ambition However, the question is, what is the object of your ambition in leadership? Yes, you want to be out front, but what is it that you are after while you are up front? Is it merely preeminence? Is it manipulation and dominance? Is it to serve self or to lay down your life for others. This is what Jesus is getting at. Maybe we can put it this way. In, in your aspiration to be out front, are you selfishly ambitious or otherly ambitious? Are you selfishly ambitious or are you otherly ambitious? And the reality is this question does not um, only apply to pastors and teachers, but this applies to leadership at all fronts. In our homes as fathers and mothers, as we lead our children, men in our marriage and our leadership to our wives, women in your ministry to one another in the body. This applies especially to every single spiritual undertaking for the sake of gospel influence that occurs in the church. This is the question. What is the object of your ambition? Are you selfishly ambitious or otherly ambitious? In other words, is your desire to lay down your life for the spiritual good of those who are around you? Or is it simply to be exalted? What is the object, what is the aim of your ambition? Robert Sosi, commenting on leadership in the church, he says this, Ministry does not consist in domination, but service. Ministry does not consist in domination, 
But service, ministry, leadership in the church, is not, it, it does not consist in domination. It does not consist in, in, in simply being out front in order to dominate and control, but it results, it leads to service. That is the heart of ministry. And this is what our Lord is pointing out to the disciples. This is what he wants them to grasp, but this is what he wants them to understand. You'll notice in chapter 10, verse 42, after James and John go and make this request of Jesus to, to be on his right hand and on his left in glory, calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. That is it. That is the purpose of leadership. That is the desire for being out front. That is what the end game is. It is to dominate. It is to control. But it is not to be this way among you. It is different. But whoever wishes to become greatest among you shall be your servant. Again, ministry does not consist in domination, but service. Before we dive into our passage, go with me to the book of 3 John. Go with me to the book of 3 John. And here, what we have is a prime example of a man who viewed ministry and leadership as domination and self-service, namely, Diotrephes. Notice what it says in verse 9 of 3 John. I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. For this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds, which he does, unjustly accusing us with wicked words and not satisfied with this he himself does not receive the brethren either and he forbids those who desire to do so and puts them out of the church here's a man who he views leadership yes he is a leader he's a he 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 is he is a, a pastor in this church but but he views leadership as domination and control he doesn't receive the apostles. He doesn't receive their letters. Anyone who tries to receive them, he throws them out of the church. He is viewing leadership from a worldly perspective. He has uncrucified selfish ambition. Notice that John, he makes at the very outset in verse 9 a very critical diagnosis of this man's heart and his character before he elaborates on his deeds. He says there he loves to be first among them. Literally preeminent. That's at the root of everything that he does in verse 10. That is at the core. That is at the root of it. That, that clause there, he loves to be first really in the Greek is one word. It is a compound word. It is made up of the word we sometimes translate love from that phileo word group. And then it's coupled, this word phileo is then coupled with this word first, protos, 
As a matter of fact, this word protos is the word that Jesus uses in verse 35 of our text. Whoever will be first among you or whoever wants to be first, this is the word that Jesus uses. John here, he uses the, 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 this, this compound word of love and first and he puts them, um, they are put together here. So combined with the word love, this word connotes the idea of being fond of being first. Having a fondness of being first. Being ambitious of the distinction, honor, and recognition that being first provides. So it's not thinking of others. It's not being otherly ambitious. But, but I want to be first. I want to be out front because I want the honor, the recognition that comes with it. I want the distinction of it. So the desire is not to serve, but to be served and dominate and control. This is a love for preeminence. This is what dominated the heart of Diotrephes. And as a result, he wreaked havoc among the saints. He was not serving. Instead of trying to be a service to the saints, if, if, if they at all had any disagreement with him, he just simply threw them out and had nothing to do with them. He was not concerned about their growth. He was not concerned about their spiritual life. He simply wanted to be first. He loved it. So this is the sin that our Lord wants the disciples to be keenly aware of that is at work among them. Because if left uncrucified, their leadership will be in danger of reflecting the self or not reflecting the self-sacrificing leadership of Christ, but that of the world. They're in danger of that. So what we'll see between chapter 9, verse 30, and chapter 10, verse 45, is, is really uh, three discourses on leadership. Three discourses on leadership. The first one will be in chapter 9, verse 30 through 37. The second one will be in chapter 9, verse 38 through 50. And then finally, the third one will be in chapter 10, verse 32 through 45. Jesus is focusing on this critical aspect of their ministry. They're going to be leaders. He wants them to know how to lead. Of course, there will be two events that occur in between these instances, but, but really, this is the focal point of this section. There is an inclusio. There, there is a, it's bookended with this reality of leadership. Today, we'll begin looking at the first one, in chapter 9, verse 30 through 37. In all these instances where Jesus will deal with the disciples concerning their leadership, the pattern is going to be the same. The selfish ambition of the disciples will be exposed by Christ, and afterwards it will be confronted by Christ. Exposed by Christ and confronted by Christ. Notice, first of all, in verses 30 through 34 of our text, the selfish ambition of the disciples is exposed by Christ. The selfish ambition of the disciples is exposed by Christ. 
Now, it's very critical to note the, the, the makeup of this section, verses 30 through 37. Because verses 30 through 35, or 30 through 34, it's critical because it is all background information that we need. It's all background information. It's all background information to the instruction that Jesus is going to give in verses 35 through 37. That's the main storyline. So in other words, you can't make sense of verses 35 through 37 unless you grasp what is going on in verses 30 through 34. It is background information. It is all in the imperfect tense, as we have been mentioning as we've been going on. So Jesus... You'll notice in verses 30 through 32, Jesus reiterates his teaching concerning the cross, concerning his imminent death. Mark records, from there they went out and began to go through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know about it. The phrase, from there, is most likely a reference to the house referred to back in verse 28. You remember, um, after... Um, Jesus heals this boy who was possessed by a demon. They go into the house and they, they question Jesus. Why couldn't we do this? And so most likely this reference from there is a reference to that house or it can be a reference to the surrounding vicinity or neighborhood of the Mount of Transfiguration where the disciples were. Nevertheless, they left that location and began making their way through Galilee. The previous scene, you'll remember, was very public. As a matter of fact, it began to, to get very chaotic. Everyone knew that Jesus was in the area. Everyone was filled with enthusiasm. And according to the last part of verse 30, you'll notice that Jesus is now seeking seclusion. He began to go through Galilee and he did not want anyone to know about it. As they went through Galilee, he sought to do so privately. He didn't want anyone to know about it. The death of Jesus is drawing near. And so these moments of privacy and seclusion were strategic times for Jesus to get with the disciples. Jesus wanted to teach them more Intimately, Jesus wanted to teach them more intensively. Jesus wanted to get in their life more. Jesus wanted to, to prepare them for this event that was about to occur, namely his crucifixion. So these moments of privacy and seclusion where he can be with the disciples alone was critical. As a matter of fact, this is what the text says. Jesus did this. Jesus was seeking this seclusion. It says, for... He was teaching them, for he was teaching his disciples and telling them. Four. That gives us the explanatory clause. The explanation. Why was Jesus doing this? Why didn't he want anyone to know about it? For he was teaching his disciples and telling them something. Again, this is all in the imperfect tense. He was teaching and he was saying to them. The disciples need these intensive moments of uninterrupted instruction. And Jesus, what he does is he brings the reality of his passion to the forefront in the minds of the disciples. Jesus' public 
Galilean ministry is, is over. It's coming to an end. It's going it's to go all the way to Capernaum, and it's going to end there. And so the only thing ahead of Jesus is the cross. And everything he is doing is geared toward preparing the disciples for the cross and future ministry. Now, in order to get a sense of what's going on in verse 31, when Jesus is instructing the disciples, you have to go to the literal rendering of this verse here because most versions put what Jesus says here in the future tense as something that is going to happen. And while that is true, the fact is, Jesus is speaking of this future event to the disciples in the present tense. So he says to them, notice, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men and they kill him. He's speaking of future events, but he speaks of them in the present tense. It is as if the Lord is grabbing them by the collar and pulling them in, and with passion and love and concern for them, knowing that they are dull of hearing, he says, listen, I want to impress this on your hearts and minds. The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men, and they kill him. Grasp this. Understand this. So certain is the reality that it's accomplished. Delivered is in the passive. I don't believe Jesus here is speaking about Judas's betrayal, and that, that, although that word is, is used there concerning his betrayal. And his betrayal will be a key factor in Jesus being handed over. But this verb is used twice of the sovereign predetermined act of God. This is the very word that is used. Of the sovereign predetermined act of God the Father in handing and delivering over Christ to be crucified. In Acts chapter 2, a very familiar passage to us, in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, I'll read it in your hearing. It says... Jesus is, I mean, Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost, and he says there, this man, that is Jesus, delivered, there's our word, over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. This is our word. He's delivered. And he is delivered by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. We don't have time, but another reference is in Romans chapter 8, verse 32. So the, the, the scriptures clearly teach that the death of Christ on the cross has its ultimate ground in God's initiative and God's plan for the redemption of man. As a matter of fact, you remember in chapter 8, verse 33, this was the basis of Jesus' rebuke to Peter. Look, my, my death on the cross, this is God's interests. This is what God has predetermined to do. This is how God is going to, to, to use me in order to bring about redemption. 
You need to align your thinking with God's predetermined plan and not your own. This is God's interest, and it has nothing to do with man. God predetermined it. It was according to his foreknowledge. Then Jesus says, and they kill him. They kill him. How could Jesus speak this way? Well, in one sense, all of these were already in the works, right? You remember in chapter 3, verse 6, after the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, they, 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 they join with the Herodians and they begin to conspire. They begin to consult among themselves and plotting, how can we destroy this man? How can we kill him? How can we rid ourselves of him? They're giving counsel. They're taking counsel regarding their murderous intent towards Jesus. The only thing left was for God to deliver him into their hands, which God was going to do. So Jesus says, they, they kill me. They haven't done it, but man, it is in their hearts. They have done it already in their heart. They are, they are conspiring how they are going to do this. It is for certain it is going to happen. And then, and after they kill him, he will literally raise himself. That verb there is in the middle voice, and so it, it has a reflexive idea there. He will raise himself. After they kill him, he will raise himself. So this is a reference to the, to, to the power and might of Christ to do this very thing. It's interesting, in Matthew chapter 17, verse 23, the passive is used, pointing to the equally true doctrine that God the Father raised him from the dead. So you say, well, which one was it? Did, did Jesus raise himself, or did God raise him? And the answer, biblically, is yes. It's yes. This is God's plan. The death of his son as a ransom and the resurrection of His Son. Jesus brings this back to the forefront, and He always puts those two together, His death and His resurrection. So this is the truth that Jesus is impressing upon the disciples. Know this, believe this. Cease being hard of hearing and dull of hearing. But the disciples... They're still slow. They're still slow of heart. They're still dull of hearing. Notice, but they did not understand this statement. And not only that, and they were afraid to ask him. Maybe they're thinking in their, you know, in their, in their fleshliness, you know, I, I don't want to be, be rebuked like Peter was. But, but even then, the, the issue isn't that Peter was rebuked. The, the issue, the reason why Peter was rebuked is because the heart behind Peter's question or his, his interaction with Jesus. His, the heart behind his interaction with Jesus was, no, this is not going to happen. This is not what I have in mind. 
So that is the unbelief that Jesus was confronting Peter for. Because Peter's mind and his heart was not set on God's interests. There was no reason to be afraid to ask Jesus. Literally, the the text says that they were ignorant concerning Jesus' statement. They didn't understand it. They were just as ignorant as they were back in chapter 8, verse 27 and following. Why? Because they were still holding to their own personal assessments and interests concerning Jesus. And this is what rendered them ignorant. That's why. But not only that, this, you know, them holding on to their own thinking, it kept them from moving toward Jesus. They could have easily moved toward Jesus in humble faith. Lord, help us to understand this. This is the second time that you've mentioned this. And and to be honest, we are struggling with this. It It doesn't fit with how we have thought things through. Please help us to understand this. Could you shed a little more light on what all of this means? No, no, no. Because they're in the flesh, they cannot move toward Christ. They recoil. They can't respond to Jesus in humility because they're in the flesh. They recoil and they content themselves in their ignorance and they turn inward and make everything about themselves. They do not want to engage Christ on those terms, right? Because Christ said some hard things. He spoke about the cross and he spoke about discipleship. Denying self. Everything that Christ is speaking about is selfless and sacrificial. It is opposed to everything that is going on in their heart right now. And Jesus knew what was in their heart and he wants to expose it. He wants to expose it. Notice Jesus interrogates the disciples concerning their selfish ambition. This is verse 33 through 34. They came to Capernaum. So Jesus, they're they're, they're traveling along and Jesus has this intimate moment in privacy where he's teaching them. He's telling them about the cross. They're ignorant about what he's saying. And finally, they arrive at Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he began to question them. What were you discussing on the way? Now, Jesus and the disciples have now completely withdrawn from Galilee. Jesus' ministry at this point is accomplished. They come to Capernaum. The text says that they were in a house, most likely this was Peter's house, where the Galilean ministry had launched from back in chapter 1, verse 21. And so this again is another private setting where Jesus intends to teach them intensively and personally. Notice, he began to question them, what were you discussing on the way? Now, Jesus here, he's not not questioning them because of lack of knowledge. That, That is not what's going on. What Jesus is doing is he's probing them. He's probing them. As a matter of fact, Luke chapter 9, verse 46, the same instance, it says Jesus knew what they were thinking in their heart. So he, Jesus knows what's going on. He knows what they were discussing. But Jesus wants to bring them out. Jesus wants to expose them. Jesus is probing them. What were you discussing? So 
So Jesus, when he looks on their heart, he saw the ugly sin of selfish ambition waging war in their hearts. Verse 34 is interesting because it says, but they kept silent. They kept silent. Why did they keep silent? For or because on the way they had discussed with one another which one of them was the greatest. I love this verse. Now, in other words, this is why this is critical background information. You won't understand Jesus' teaching in verses 35 through 37 unless you grasp what's happening here. This is why all of this is in the imperfect. They kept silent. So this verse, it gives us insight into the irony and shame that is present in the moment. What is the irony? The irony is this. That on the one hand, Jesus is passionately articulating the most self-sacrificing and selfless act that he is about to perform. It has nothing to do with self. It has all to do with his father, obeying his father. It is all so that many may be ransomed. It has nothing to do with him. And on the other hand, the disciples are engaged in the most petty and selfish intramural debate concerning their status and prestige in the kingdom. That's the irony. For or because on the way they had discussed with one another which one of them was the greatest. Uh, Jesus, he's, he's feeling the heat of the cross. It's coming. It is bearing down. He's going to Jerusalem. He's about to lay down his life and he is passionately and with concern speaking to the disciples and all they can do is turn inward, recoil towards that and simply begin to argue amongst themselves Who's the greatest? When this is all said and done, who, who's, who's going to be out front? This is why they are silent. There is a shame. There is irony, and now there is shame. The question that Jesus poses to them puts their disposition into proper perspective. They're ashamed. It exposed how dull of hearing they really were. Jesus is speaking about the cross and we're speaking about who's going to be greater. And now Jesus says, what were you discussing? And everyone's just like, well, I, I don't. You tell him. I don't, I'm, I'm not saying anything. I like how one commentator put it. He says, the unexpected question brought conviction, confusion. I'm sorry, the, the unexpected question brought conf, uh, a conviction. Confusion and shame sealed their lips. Faced with the question posed by the one prepared to surrender himself to the lowliness and obscurity of the cross, they whose thoughts are all of their own status and prestige can have nothing to say, end quote. You see, the pettiness and selfishness of their disposition is brought into clear perspective. And now that it is exposed, there is shame and everyone keeps silent. The word greatest there is from the word mega, megas. It's the same 
word that's used in all of the synoptic gospels in this narrative. And this word is comparative in form. And has a superlative connotation in Hellenistic Greek. So here it refers to status and rank. Who is going to be greatest in compared to the other? In comparison to others, who is going to be the greatest? Who among us will be who will have the, the greatest rank? Who among us will have the greatest status? Who is going to be out front? Who is going to be on the top? This is the question. However, their perspective on greatness, leadership, and rank was skewed. It was selfishly ambitious and not otherly ambitious. I mean, when they're, when they're thinking of who is going to be the greatest, they're not thinking, man, you know, how can I lay down my life to serve? They're thinking, no, who's going to have the prestige of this rank, of being top in the kingdom? Who's going to have it? Who's going to be at the top? And you can imagine this discussion probably likely, most likely arose as a result of Jesus beginning to make distinctions among the disciples. According to Matthew, after Peter's confession, Jesus begins to speak very poignantly to Peter. Something is distinct about Peter. Peter is going to be given the kingdom or the keys to the kingdom. Jesus speaks to him in ways that he is not speaking to the others. And then on top of that, Jesus takes these three disciples and he goes to the mountain of transfiguration. And there they see his glory being revealed while at the bottom of the mountain you have ten disciples struggling to perform a miracle. So all of them, all of this is put into perspective. Well, you got to go on top of the mountain. We got to go on top of the mountain. You didn't get to go. You're not, you're not going to be greater than us. Why do you think he put us there? Why do you think he allowed us to see it and not allow you to see it? Hey, wait, hold on. He said to me that upon this rock he is going to build his church. And he gave the, king, the, the, the keys to, to me. And, and, and so what do, you, what do you mean you're greater than me? Hey, listen, you guys, you guys couldn't even cast out that, that, um, that demon. You guys were struggling. You guys couldn't even do it. And you think you're going to be greater than me? And so Jesus, he just spoke about his crucifixion and how it's coming. And this is the debate that they're having. This intramural, petty debate. Who's going to be greater? You're not going to be greater than me. You can't be greater than me. And now they're bickering and fighting. And James and John will even go to Jesus in private and try to, and try to see if they could sneak something in. They're quarreling among themselves, making petty arguments as to why they should have rank over the other. And this is what selfish ambition and jealousy degenerates to. James chapter 3 verse 16, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is every evil thing. Every evil thing. They're putting each other down. They're... Instead of trying to probably build up those men who were, who were struggling to cast out the demons, they're using that against them. There's no way you could be first. You couldn't even do that. So they're not building each other up. Every evil thing is existing among them. James goes on in James chapter 4, verse 1. What is the source of quarrels among you? What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures or your lusts 
that wage war in your members? What's the source of this quarrel going on amongst the disciples? It is their lust for preeminence. Their lust for preeminence. And it is waging war in their members and they're not crucifying it. And Jesus sees this. And so Jesus confronts them for it. Confronts them for it. And this is what we're going to look at next week in verses 35 through 37 when Jesus confronts the selfish ambition of the disciples. Lord, we confess to you that we we see this and we can identify with it. We have selfish ambition that wages war in our hearts, jealousy. Jealousy at how you're using others, jealousy at how you're gifting others, jealousy at how you and your providence are working things out. And this, where it exists, every evil thing also exists. We can't be unified, we can't strive together for the unity of the faith, the gospel. So we ask you for forgiveness. Like you did for the disciples, expose it in our hearts. Bring shame and conviction upon us as a result of it. And give us the grace to confess it to you and to repent of it. It is not about us. It is about you. It is about what you are doing, what you are accomplishing. It is about serving others. So help us in this. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.